0: Um, if we haven't met, my name is Simon. As they mentioned, I'm the lead pastor here at Grace City. i one of a team of leaders who are here to, to serve our church and that kind of good stuff. Um, thank you for being here this morning. We've been working through a series, a sermon series, if you will, for the last, um, yeah, a couple months now, a few months. We're getting towards the end of our series. It's been based out of a, a couple of verses in the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 12 specifically, um, where the writer uses the metaphor of a race um, to encourage us, the believer, to also run, to follow Jesus and to run this glorious race that has been set before us. And as we do, the writer encourages us to consider the great cloud of witnesses, who have gone before us. So, as it turns out, we're not the first to follow Jesus on this epic race, as as it were. And the great cloud of witnesses um, are actually listed not uh, exhaustively, but there's a long list of men and women who are listed in Hebrews chapter eleven. Um, th- these are those who have gone before the great cloud of witnesses, and so we've been looking through each one of these people, looking at their stories and seeing if we can't draw out, like, the how, how are these people, these ancients, and their stories meant to encourage us and help us and inform our own race, our own journey as we follow Jesus. So that's what we've been up to, and that's for all the newbies this morning. This is what you're getting into. Um, without any further ado, we're going to go ahead and look at the story of J- uh, Samson, this morning, he's next in the list. Um, you guys remember Samson? Samson, I mentioned to someone this week uh, that we're doing Samson this Sunday. They're like, "Yes, Samson's my favorite." It's sort of like he's kind of the Incredible Hulk of like the Old Testament. Like most of us, that's that's about as much as we remember this guy. This is the guy who had like superhuman strength, um, and somehow had something to do with the length of his hair. Um, there's more to the story. There's more to the story. So this is Cloud of Witnesses, part 14, the story of Samson. We're going to go to Judges 13 this morning. Um, The story of Samson, it's one of the longer ones. Um, It actually spans, what, three or four chapters. Obviously, we're not going to look at every detail or every chapter or verse this morning. Um, We'll look at a portion of his story, sort of the introduction to Samson's life and story, and then we'll go from there let's go ahead and read from Judges chapter 13. We're going to look at verses 1 through 5, then we're going to skip just a little section, and then look at verses 11 through 14. As always, the words will be on the screen. You're welcome to also just listen as I read. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. There was a certain man of Zora, of the tribe of the Danites whose name was Manoah and his wife was barren and had no children and the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, behold, you are barren and have not born children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Therefore, be careful and drink no wine or strong drink and eat nothing unclean for behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. So as the story goes, the woman went and told her husband, Manoah, what had happened, because she was alone when she had this angelic encounter. And um, Manoah was quite enthusiastic. He seemed to respond very positively. And he was hoping that the angel or whoever this mysterious figure was would come back. And so he actually prays. He says, God, send send your messenger back because I've got, I need details. And in verse 11, it says, and Manoah arose and went after his wife and came to the man, because he came back, and said to him, are you the man who spoke to this woman? Referring to his wife. And he said, I am. And Manoah said, now, when your words come true, what is to be the child's manner of life and what is his mission? And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, of all that I've said to the woman, let her be careful. She may not eat of anything that comes from the the vine, neither let her drink wine or strong drink or eat any unclean thing. All that I commanded her, Let her observe. I'm going to stop there. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, as always, we're grateful to be able to gather in this way. And we're grateful for your word. I pray that this morning as we consider these words and this story in particular, that you would help us. I pray that your heart would resound in uh, in my message, as I do my best um, to preach according to your word, pray that you'd open our hearts and minds that we would receive from you. In Jesus' name, Amen. Um. Samson's story is a tragic story. If you read the whole thing, it'll bring you to tears. Um, it's super sad. Um, I hate to spoil it for you if you haven't, but it ends horribly. It's, it's actually very difficult to find even a hint of redemption in the story of Samson. It's, it's a tragedy. Um, it's the story of a man who had an amazing destiny set before him, as we read. And as we quickly find out, it's the story of a man who's incredibly gifted by God. He's, he's given um, superhuman strength kind of cool it's also the story of a man who in the end wasted his extraordinary gifts and ultimately even his very life it's also the story of God have how God continued to faithfully work through the life of the man even when he was royally messing up God was ridiculously patient and faithful it's also a cautionary tale a story that reminds us of what happens when we use the gifts of God but forget to uh, work on our interior world. Um, I believe this story might, of all the stories we've covered, might best apply to what it says in Hebrews chapter 12, as I just referenced. Let me, let me read it to you. It says, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance. The, mark, the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus. Um, this is a cautionary tale. It's one of the, I mean, it's, there's layers to it to be sure. But I believe that this story um, perhaps like none of the other stories we've covered so far speaks to the, um, the, the exhortation, the directive to make sure that as you run, you throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Uh, you could say, I would say, that Samson um, fails terribly at that. And so that's what I want us to consider this morning. Um, you might find it a bit challenging, um, and I am going to do my best to make sure by the, end we, by the time we get to the end of our service this morning, our eyes will be firmly fixed on Jesus. Because it's no good to focus on the failings of humans if we never get to the cross. And um, I will do my best to get there. Samson's story reminds us to not just run in faith, but to also run in freedom, throwing off the things that entangle us along the way. Let me put it this way, to use some of the words we've just read. Samson's story is a story of how not only is the mission important and exciting, but the manner in which we go about it is just as crucial. I love the question that Manoah asks the angel, what will his manner of life be and what will his mission be? It's fun to talk mission. It's fun to dream about the goal and the exciting uh, plans, the works that God has prepared for us. In fact, I think it's like the funnest thing of all. Like, I am a bit of an optimist. I don't, like, I don't like to think too long or hard about all that's going wrong with the world and how all the ways that I'm failing or the ways that Samson has failed. Um, I want to talk about the mission. I want to talk about what God is up to. I want to talk about the prize. But the thing about the New Testament, if you've ever perused it, virtually every letter, once you get past the four gospels and you start reading these letters to the church, virtually every letter starts out the same way. There's a, sort of an introduction, and then the writer will immediately preach the gospel, remind the reader of who God is and what He has done, the victory He's won in Christ, and it's always right up front. It's the first thing. God has set you free. The God of deliverance has accomplished His work, and sometimes you you, you can miss it because it's like half a sentence, but it's always right there at the outset. And then the writer, often the Apostle Paul, will proceed to talk about the implications. Since God has won this great victory, since Jesus has finished the race, therefore, this is what it looks like, lived out. This is what that victory looks like, applied in everyday life. This is what the manner of the gospel is, lived out or not. The Bible also talks about, here's, here's what the manner of life looks like, and here's what it doesn't look like. And once again, I think Samson, perhaps, is a great example of a man who forgets to mind his manner. So, now, there's, um, it's a long, long story, as I've mentioned. And there's so many, I mean, this is like layer upon layer upon layer. There's so many things that we can actually draw out of the story. We, we don't have the time. So I've, I've um, narrowed it down to just a few, all right? So try, try to, um, I'm going to do my best to connect the dots. But if along the way, you're like, wait a second, I'm not, I'm losing the plot. It's, it's okay. Just bear with me, all right? Samson's born. His parents are told, this is who your boy's going to be. He's to be a Nazarite. Um, which is a very a, sort of an obscure kind of vow that an individual would take. It happens a couple times in the Old Testament. Um, but it's essentially, it's, it's someone who's been dedicated to serve God or to fulfill some special purpose that God has prepared for them. And part of their vow is um, they're, they're not allowed to drink anything uh, like alcoholic they're teetotal, um, and they're not allowed to touch, touch anything that's dead. That would be to touch an unclean thing. And for some reason, they're not allowed to cut their hair. I'm not, I don't understand what that is. Some of you, I think, maybe, are attempting the Nazarite vow, looking good, looking good. Love it, Josh. <clears throat> I used to, but, then I stopped smoking pot, so there you go. No, just kidding. <laughs> kidding. So he takes this Nazarite vow. We're not told anything about his childhood, but apparently he grows up. The next thing that we're told in the story is that Samson sees a girl that he likes. She's she's a pretty girl. Um, And she's not one of the the Hebrew girls. Um, Now, in the the ancient Hebrew world, talking about the nation of Israel, uh, there were some really strict laws that, I don't want to get too sidetracked. Let me just say it this way. Samson should have been looking for a girlfriend in his own like, people group. Um, somehow that was, that was really, really important that God's people adhered to that for various reasons. Samson couldn't be bothered. He saw a really pretty Philistine girl. And he goes to his parents and he says, I found a girl. I like her, I want her, go get her for me now. That's literally how it reads. This is chapter 14, verses one through three. Get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. Met a girl. She's hot. Go get her for me now. He commands his parents to go get this girl for me, for she is right in my eyes. The author is giving us a little little clue here. He's using some deliberate language. You know how the book of Judges ends? If you skip all the way to the end, Judges chapter 21, verse 25. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. This is the part of God's, God's story where his people are derailing They've completely forgotten who God is, what he's like, and thus they've forgotten who they are. No one's following the true king in heaven. Everyone's doing their own thing. Everyone is a king unto themselves, and they're doing what seems right in their eyes. And this is where the story of Samson begins. He's doing what's right in his own eyes. I would argue that the church, I'm talking about our church, the church, maybe not our church, it's too personal. The church has largely become an assembly of theological curators. Not brothers and sisters submitted to spiritual mothers and fathers, but self-appointed experts, Critics who judge the preaching of God's word versus disciples who sit under the humble authority of their leaders. Leaders who are keeping watch over your souls. Leaders who will also have to give an account to God directly in the day of judgment. Ironically, this is what it says in Hebrews chapter 13. It's the very end of Hebrews. Now, I I read it off without making eye contact with anyone because it's really, really uncomfortable to say something like that. I believe that the church in general has become a collection of theological curators, people who simply pick and choose. Oh, I agree with that. I don't don't agree with that. That was okay, but I'm not going to... And instead of actually sending under the authority of spiritual mothers and fathers... Or leaders, we simply sit back and we judge our leaders. We inwardly critique them and pick and choose when or if we're going to submit to them at all. Now, because I'm not completely unaware of reality, I know that that is incredibly unpopular. Like some of you are probably like, man, if it wasn't such a small crowd, I would walk out right now. Don't like it. It offends me. Sounds like cult talk to me. But it's like blatantly biblical. It's all over the New Testament. Submit to your leaders. They will give an account to God as those who have been appointed by the Holy Spirit to oversee the flock. Under the supreme authority of Jesus, according to God's word. I believe this is what's happening at the outset of Samson's story. This is a man who has no interest in, t- in submitting to the leadership of his mother and father. He simply sees a woman. She looks right in his own eyes. And I'm an individual. I've got Google. Google. I've got opinions. I'm a self-appointed expert. Go get her for me. Now, what do you guys think about that? I'm getting a big thumbs up in the back. Oh, I'm getting a thumbs down. Okay, mixed feelings. To be sure. To be expected. To be expected. Now, this is tricky. This is dangerous. This is hard. This is really, really hard. For some obvious reasons. One being, we live in a world where it's hard to find people, much less leaders of integrity. Like you would be a fool to just blindly trust a guy standing on a stage with a microphone without any qualifications, without any relationship, without any trust. Particularly if that's a leader who's not submitted to authority, him or herself. Um... I got a couple of phone calls this week. Uh, the first one was, I believe, Tuesday, yeah, Tuesday morning from one of our leaders in the church. And uh, it started out with a text and we called and he proceeded to tell me, hey, I really struggled with your sermon last week. So I'm like, i like, he, he was very, very nice about it, very gentle. Um, but essentially, he was like, look, some red flags went up for me. I don't really agree with how you sort of interpreted the story of Jephthah. I'm like, okay, okay. Well, that's, that's interesting. Keep studying, maybe, maybe you'll get it someday. It's kind of kind of my internal dialogue, <laughs> thinking like, okay, whatever, all right. Um, I thought about it and we talked and it was really good. Um, but my initial reaction was just one of like, um, hold on, let me check, who, who has the, the theology degree again? Oh, oh, yeah, that's me. Um, who, who spent, like, a whole week, like, crying out to God in prayer over this passage oh, all week? Oh, that, would, that would be me, you know. And just this really, like, self-righteous, like, defensive attitude. And then I got another call from one of our elders in the church. And he proceeded to kind of share the same thing with me. And I was just like, hmm, hmm. But I have the, the theology degree, but I prayed. But God spoke to me. For sure God spoke to me. I went back over my notes, and I'm like, I, this is no. There's no way I could be wrong. And then I remembered that um, there's a reason why God will place us in family. That if a church is healthy... And that if leaders are healthy, including the pastor or the team of pastors, whatever the the system might be in that church, there's there's a submission, there's mutual submission. Sometimes uh, I'll relate to one of our elders very much on a peer level, where it feels like there's a mutual submission kind of happening. Other times, uh, I'm now sort of just wearing the pastor hat, and I'm like, no, I'm the leader in this moment, and my appeal is that you would submit to me. You don't have to agree with me, but I'm asking you to submit to me because I'm, I'm really trying to do my job. And I'd appreciate it if you could just help me do that and trust that, that I'm a man under authority. And other times, I didn't have to submit myself to that same person who's now operating in a position where it's their responsibility to pick up the phone and call me. And say, I don't, I don't think you were quite on there. Can I appeal to you? And so in the church, there's a, there's a community of submission at work where we're not just doing our own thing, where we're not just sitting back sort of like critiquing whoever's got the microphone, thinking that somehow, like I'm the self-appointed expert and, and I just sort of decide for myself, me and my Google, what, what I like, what I disagree with, and what I don't. That's, um, that's just insecurity. You no, know, instead we, we come to each other, and we say, can I appeal to you? And we trust that actually we're building what, not just a, um, a business where people get hired and fired, but more like something that's a community or a family. We're relating to each other as brothers and sisters and aunties and uncles and mothers and fathers. And no one, no one, no one is at the top except for Jesus. Jesus, as we know him to be according to scripture. Is this, is this hard? Oh, so by the way, uh, my sermon last week. So here's, here's where I was in error. Jephthah, if you weren't here last week, you can go back and listen to it. Jephthah was a man who made a vow that in the end cost him the life of his innocent daughter. Okay, that was in gross breach of God's law. We know for sure that God would never, ever condone, never has condoned human sacrifice. That, that's, that's, That's the exact opposite of God's heart. And so something about the story of Jephthah, when you just read through it, immediately bells should go off. Like, what is happening in this story? And it creates this awful tension. Like, how could God be in this story? This, This is just so wrong on so many levels. God would never allow it. And yet in the story, he's actually, he's silent about it. Very, very difficult story to process. What I did was sort of take a prophetic, what I call a prophetic approach to this story, and say, you know, despite that, despite the fact that thus his decision was actually grossly sinful, and not like God at all. There's still something about the story that draws our attention to God's perfect story, where God, he actually has to make a sacrifice himself. A very costly sacrifice which results in the deliverance of the world. There's a parallel there but my mistake was not highlighting the fact that actually Jephthah's decision to sacrifice his innocent daughter was nothing like what God the Father and the Son of God did in sacrificing life together in order to save us. So I told our elder, if I was to re-preach it again, um, I would want to, to clearly emphasize that distinction. That wouldn't have happened if we were a church where submission was not a thing. No one would have called me. No one would have reached out. No one would have said anything, because I'm way up on this pedestal, untouchable, with my big old degree, or my little degree or my big head and all my deep insecurity. And so submission um, is part of the manner of life. All right. Part of me, like wants to like take questions now. <laughs> It was such a weird week because I got texts from some people who were like, man, that was maybe the best thing I've ever heard in my life. Like God spoke to me so powerfully and I'm like getting freedom. And the other people were like, that, that, was, that was terrible and I'm deeply concerned. I'm just like, I am losing sleep. Like this is really hard. If you want to talk about it more, please don't, don't hesitate to reach out. Um, so he gets the girl. He gets the girl. His parents actually obey Samson, and they get the girl for him. On his way to the the arranged wedding ceremony, we're told that Samson gets attacked by a lion. Super weird. Samson gets attacked by a lion, and we're told the Spirit of the Lord rushes upon Samson, and he kills the thing with his bare hands. So there you have it. Samson's superpower revealed. The Spirit of God comes on him and he has strength. He rips this lion apart with his bare hands. But we're told in chapter 14, verses 6 and 9, but he did not tell his father or mother about what he had done. What's happening? This is the part of the story where Samson begins hiding. Not lying per se, Um, just not mentioning to his parents that he had just not only touched but killed a beast. That's a breach of the Nazarite code. He would have had blood all over himself. And instead of going to his parents to say, "Hey, this this is what happened. I'm I I don't I'm not sure what to make of it. Um, I'm super nervous. I feel ashamed. Like I don't know what came over me. I mean, I could have just like run the thing off, but like something. I I just I don't know. I just ripped the thing apart. It was insane. There was blood everywhere. But he kept it hidden. He kept it covered up. Manner of life. If number one, we could say, be submitted." Uh, Point number two, be honest with others. We're told that um, after he's coming back from the wedding, uh, he's not confessed to anyone what's happened. He notices a beehive has formed in the carcass of this lion. It must have been a while. So they somehow hollowed out a portion of this lion carcass and made a hive. And Samson notices it and he looks and he sees a bunch of honey coming out of this thing. So he takes some of the honey, eats it, and it, we're told that he shares some with his parents. But again, he doesn't tell them where he got it from. So Samson is beginning to not only uh, lie to others, but this is the beginning of Samson's uh, lying to himself. Now, I think there's something going on here. Honey in the Old Testament, it's a, it's a symbolic um, thing. It comes up a few times. It's obviously very sweet. Uh, when God promised to deliver his people out of Egypt and, and bring them into the Promised Land, it was a, it was a land flowing with milk and honey. It's a a sign of blessing, prosperity, God's goodness, his faithfulness. And so here's a picture of Samson using his strength. The Holy Spirit rushed upon him, and he uses his strength to kill this lion. He knows what he's done is not quite right, but instead of confessing, instead of running to his parents, he hides it from them. But then he sees the honey in the carcass. You have to imagine what's what's happening in this moment. What's what's the story trying to tell us? Samson finds a sign of God's blessing in the very thing that he was hiding. So it's like this mixture of sweetness and the rotten. And he keeps hiding it. Samson's not just lying to his parents but he's lying to himself. Have you ever been in a situation where you, you, you're, you're doing something and your conscience begins to, be, begins to kind of weigh on you? And you're like, I oh, no, know, that's not right. And you're not, you're not super excited about like, confessing it or bringing it out into the open. And so you, you manage to, to sort of like subtly not tell the truth about it. Just, just don't mention it. You just don't mention it. And then and then you begin to experience like good things in the midst of that one thing that you were actually quite ashamed of and so you you find yourself in this like in this situation where there's this mixture of like i know it was i i felt really ashamed and i wanted to hide it and yet it seems like maybe god's cool with it cuz look we got honey and he shares it i got honey i'm blessed surely I know what it is. I know what it is. God's clearly cool with the situation. He's affirming my uh, my little secret. That's the beginning of Samson lying to himself, finding a way to justify. The very thing that he was keeping hidden, because now it sort of results in some kind of a blessing, personal benefit. Surely God must be okay with my situation, my quote-unquote special situation, because look, he's blessing it. You ever lie to yourself like that? You know what I'm talking about. We all know. Maybe I hope. Hopefully, I'm articulating it because this is like this is a common human phenomenon. We lie to ourselves, particularly or usually when it comes to the thing that we're ashamed of. Instead of dealing with it, bringing out into the open, confessing. Letting others in. We, have to, we can only survive so long that way until we're eventually, virtually forced to figure out a way to justify it in my own mind. And thus we begin to lie to ourselves. What we knew needed to be hidden is now the thing that I've figured out a way to work around. I'm lying to myself. This is, by the way, how addiction starts. We have to to lie to ourselves to keep the story going. This is super depressing, right? Be submitted, be honest with others and be honest with yourself. Um, I've been thinking of a way to uh, incorporate a Tim Keller quote um, because he was just a real hero for so many of us, a pastor out in New York who passed away a couple of weeks ago. Tim Keller uh, read in his, what is it, City Church? It's basically his like church planting textbook. It's a big fat manual. And he talks about how, as a, as a church planter or a person um, who's following God, there's a temptation to confuse the category, this is t- Keller, the categories of success, faithfulness, and fruitfulness. Um, oftentimes uh, we, we can get so driven uh, in our, our lives and even in our spiritual pursuits that the goal simply becomes success. Um, and we think that if I'm experiencing success, i.e. Uh, uh, growth, uh, financial wealth, or health, or like all the things that you might be tempted to point out and say, oh, look at that, success. That's honey, yo, honey. Dripping out the carcass, proof, I'm, I'm, doing, I'm doing it right. God is with me, success. Uh, of course, that can go to, to gross extremes and which easily is, is, is seen for what it is. It's like no, that, just because you've got a big car doesn't mean that's God blessing you. Just because you got cash in the bank and everything's working, that, that doesn't necessarily mean. There's a lot of ways to achieve honey doesn't mean you're actually experiencing God's best, his life, his vision for your life, which is the best. True success, as it were. So you can go to the other side. Well, some would argue then, you know what? Success doesn't matter. We don't need to think about how big or how good or how much or just that's that's all evil. That's just secular thinking. What we really need to focus on is just faithfulness. Just, just, just. Plot away. Just keep doing the thing that God told you to do. And as soon as you start counting heads in the room or you start looking at metrics or considering all the things that might actually possibly be an indication of God's blessing, well, that's, that's just nonsense. So just be faithful. Don't pay any attention to, uh, you know, if you're actually leading anyone to Jesus or if your relationships are actually healthy or if the people are showing it. You know, all the things— um, that you might call success, just be faithful. And the problem with that is, um, actually Jesus called us to be fruitful. He said that you will, be, um, you will bear much fruit and your fruit will remain. So Keller helpfully distinguishes between worldly success, um, quote unquote, pious faithfulness, which could just be co-word for you're not doing your job very well, And fruitfulness. Not just what tastes sweet, but what actually is from God. The fruits of the Spirit. The sweet aroma of God's presence in a person's life, in a person's heart, in a community, in our relationships. And so we need to be honest with ourselves just because I've got some honey to share doesn't mean I'm actually bearing fruit that glorifies Jesus. Let's keep going. From there, Samson begins a string of, let's say, unhealthy relationships. The girl that he married ends up betraying him. It's the beginning of many, many tragedies. She lies to him. She manipulates him, coerces him into um, basically telling her some information that the, she then uses against him, and the Philistines come and try to capture him, kill him. He ends up retaliating and uses the very strength that God has given him to kill 30 men. Quite a few people. And it's a, it's a revenge kill. This isn't like for the glory of God. This is like, oh, really? It's like that? Now this is happening. He goes out and he kills 30 men. Manipulation, betrayal, rage, retaliation, risk, etc. And the spirit of the Lord continues to be with him. Now this is the part of the story where in the midst of like all of the, just the, the brokenness. I mean, talk about an unhealthy leader. A man who's clearly gifted but who's figured out a way not only to hide from the people around him, totally unsubmitted, but has now figured out a way to lie to himself, because he's got honey, he's got the strength, he's winning. And thus begins the cycle. The story from there just begins to spiral down and down and down and down, and the man gets betrayed. He gets lied to. He seeks revenge. And the story just keeps repeating itself several times. And the spirit of the Lord rushes upon him. And even in the midst of all this dysfunction and brokenness and death, God hasn't left him. Now there is a glimmer of hope. There's our thread of redemption. The incredible, patient, gracious heart of God. Eventually, um, we get to the turning point of Samson's story. In chapter 15, which is about halfway through, verse 7, uh, we get this epic line. Samson's just uh, acted out, let's put it that way. And then he makes a statement. He says, I swear I will be avenged on you, and after that, I will quit. You guys have heard of the sinner's prayer? You know that one, the sinner's prayer? This is the sinner's vow. Or the addict's vow, if you will. I swear to you, this will be the last time. Okay, when you catch yourself thinking that, my friend, you've gone the way of Samson. You've gone the way of so, so many others. I promise this is the last time. I swear, I'll never, never again, never again, I did it, I hate it, I did it again, I did it for the hundredth time, but I swear, I swear to you, God, that was the last time, that was definitely the last time, until you relapse, and you're like, but that was the last time, for sure, that was the last time, oh, I feel so bad, oh, I feel so convicted, but for sure, that's the last time, I'll never do it again until you do it again. But for sure, that was the last time. Like, oh, I'm serious this time. That was definitely the last time. Are you guys with me? I could go on and on and on. Like, I get this is so depressing, right? Like, but this is Samson's story. It's the man who hides, who lies to himself, and who then begins to think like an addict. A sin addict. I'll do better. I'll change. I swear, God, that was the last time. I thought I had this under control. I thought I could handle things. I, um, I've, I've shared this story so many times, so forgive me if it's, if it's boring to you at this point. But this was such a, a significant part of my life. When I become a Christian, there was a man who I absolutely worshipped. He was my mentor, he was my student pastor at my very first church, and long story short, turns out he'd been having an affair with one of the girls in the church, and um, it came out, and it just, it ruined me. I realized, I realized that this whole idea of submitting to humans was risky business. Really, really risky business. And, um, it was weird because the man, when it all came out, just like that, it was really, really weird and traumatic. But the news came out and the announcement was made, and then everything was just like quickly sort of swept under the carpet. It was like, are we going to talk about this? Like we don't need to like, you know, punish the, the, the family, the people involved, the survivors, but, but can, we, can we talk about this? No one was talking about it. And the guy just disappeared, literally just vanished. Until one day, it was about like a week gone by, I was going to go get my haircut in Long Beach. and I walk into the place where it just so happened, me and the gentleman used to both go. And there he is in the chair getting his haircut. And I walk in, I see him. He didn't see me, but I saw him. And I was like, oh, snap, my heart sort of skipped a beat. My first, my impulse Reaction was like, leave, 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 run. Don't do this now. You're not ready. Just get out. I overcame that, and I walked in, and I walked up to him, and I was like, hey, what's up? He said, hey, what's up? Get my haircut. Mm-hmm. We should talk. Mm-hmm. I'll, I'll be here. So he got his haircut. I got my haircut. I walked outside and there he was sitting on a little bench on the sidewalk and I was like, "So, what's going on?" Heard the news. Mm-hmm. Yeah, how's the family? Terrible. Yeah. Mhm. So, I got to ask you one thing. This is what I said. I just need to know one thing. And of course, there was a lot I wanted to know. I wanted like all the details. Exactly when did this happen? What did you do exactly? How far did it go? I wanna know everything. But really, I just needed to know one thing. And this is what I asked him. How did it happen? Like, Like, how did you get there? Because I've heard your story and it's just like mine. You met Jesus and he got a hold of your life and he changed you and he captured your heart and you started following him and you were desperate to tell others. And how? Like, how? And he said, Simon, I thought I had it under control. I didn't think it was ever going to happen again. I I thought I had it. I said, okay. That I get Have a nice life. I don't know. I forgive you. Kind of. Working on it. Hair looks good. Then <laughs> we awkwardly parted ways. I thought I had it, I thought it was the last time. I know that feeling. Samson continues spiraling, eventually ends up massacring a thousand men with a donkey bone. The jawbone of a dead donkey picks this thing up in a moment of like berserker revenge rage. He just starts slaughtering dudes. What's crazy is that the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him and he used that strength, that gift from God to do violence. Not to set people free, not to defend the oppressed, not to deliver slaves, but to avenge himself because of his pain. He was hurting. And he spiraled and he spiraled and he spiraled and he spiraled. And still his strength was with him it was with him until it wasn't eventually samson um we're told that he he hides out for a while then he goes down to the district of gaza um gets with a prostitute uh some of the townspeople find out he's there they try to trap him he escapes we're told he he gets uh the gate of the city he literally rips the thing out of the ground Pick, this guy must have been huge picks up the entire gate puts it on his back, and runs up the hill neighboring the town and just leaves it there and then walks off. That's nuts. Then he meets a woman named Delilah. He falls in love again. It's the same story all over. Um, The woman wants to manipulate him, coerce him, so that she can ultimately betray him and turn him over to her people. It's the same story all over again. And uh, we're told that she keeps pressing him, pressing him, pressing him. How might you be bound? The wording's ironic. How might you be bound, you strong man? How do you do it? How might your enemy ultimately bind you? Tell me the secret of your strength. And he, he refuses, he refuses, he refuses. And I'm not going to tell you. And she persists. And it says, it says finally, he was ve- his soul was vexed to death. He was like, just just end it. Like, put me out of my misery. Here it is. Here's my secret. Do your worst. And she does. And we're told that she cuts his hair. She lulls him to sleep. He falls asleep, his head in her lap. She gets some guy to come and cut his hair. He wakes up. The Philistines are upon you, Samson. Here they come. Where do they come from? And he says that he's, he sets up and he says, I'm going to go out and I'll, I'll, I'll set myself free. I'll fight again. I'll overcome just like all the other times only he didn't realize that the spirit of God had finally left him. What an awful thought. What an awful thought. Not sure what to do with that. How might you be bound And in chapter 16, it says, and he told her all her heart. And he fell asleep, head in her lap. He's um, finally captured. They gouge his eyes out. He's lost his strength. They gouge his eyes out. They bind him. They put him in jail, and they set him on the millstone just grinding. It's like that opening scene in um, Conan the Barbarian. Remember that? Arnold Schwarzenegger. It's that scene. And um, the Philistines are having a big party. Huge palace. We're told there's like 3,000 people on the roof terrace. This whole place is held up by a couple of giant pillars. One of them says, bring out Samson. Let's have some entertainment. And Samson comes out blind, led forth by a little child. And he's standing in the middle of this or the Serena. We're told that Samson, he prays to himself, says, "God give me strength one more time that I might be avenged for the loss of my eyes. We're not told that God says anything or responds in any way. We're not told that the Spirit of the Lord rushes upon him, but we are told that with the last bit of strength he can muster, he puts all of his weight on these two pillars and causes the whole place to collapse. 3,000 plus people die. We're told that he killed more people in his death than he ever did when he was alive. The end. What a sad ending. In the end, the gift that God gave him ended up in the death of many because of the insecurity and the pain of the man, including his own death itself. What do you do with that? You know, there's a weakness that leads to death, and there's a weakness that leads to life. In the end, Samson spilled his guts to Delilah, what's her name? It means delicate. This delicate woman persuades him into spilling his guts. And he says, finally, that's it. He told her all of his heart and then fell asleep. With his head in her lap, there's a weakness that leads to death, and there's a weakness that leads to life. Here's the um, here's how we land at the cross. Here's where Jesus becomes the hero. Um, first, in summary, be submitted. Um, be honest with your people, be honest with yourself and then be weak, prepared, be prepared for God to lead you to the end of yourself, your strength, your gifting, your brilliance, your ability, your might, your power, that God in your weakness might demonstrate his strength, which in fact does lead to new life. See, the tragedy of Samson is that God wanted to bring him to a place where he could be honest, where he could stop lying to himself, where he could simply admit, I've said this is the last time, like, What, a hundred times? It's time to get vulnerable. It's time to be real. It's time to expose myself. It's time to spill my guts. But not to Delilah. Not to the same person who keeps abusing me, who keeps lying, manipulating, betraying me, because that's what we do when we've been traumatized, when we've been hurt, ironically, tragically, for some crazy, bizarre reason that we're all familiar with. We keep going back. We keep going back. Abuse me again. And we, we want to bond with our trauma. And we keep going back and reliving the nightmare over and over and over again. And God comes to us and says, it's time to become weak. Because when you are weak, I am strong. And so God wants us to come to him and to fall asleep, to rest head in his lap. So that when we wake up in a state of radical vulnerability, we're safe. We can lose our life knowing that in his hands he gives us new life. We can be vulnerable. We can submit. We can be honest with others and ourselves. And we can lay our heads in the lap of our father and trust that he's got us. We're safe. He's not just wanting to embarrass us or punish us. He's not a punitive father. His heart is to embrace us. To make us strong. That we might be strong in the power of his might. And so there is a death that leads, there is a weakness that leads to death in which we would do well to protect ourselves from. But then there's a weakness that leads to life in Jesus. Jesus in the garden, that place called Gethsemane, poured out his heart said father i don't know i don't know if i can do this die surrender allow myself to be utterly exposed father into your hands i commit my soul i'm in your hands i'm in your hands it feels like I'm dying. It feels like I'm so exposed. But I choose to rest now in your hands. Wouldn't you love that for Samson? Let me, let me close on this one. I've got to close because I've been going on too long now. Um, here's, a, here's something for us as a community So I'm talking about all this stuff like the the idea is what if we are the kind of community where we could actually practice this stuff? Like being submitted to one another, right? That's hard. Um, Being honest. Like you can actually say what's going on. You can actually say this is where I'm at. This is what's going on with me. This is what I'm stuck with. This is, this is what I'm addicted to. to, to. Uh, this is what's going on with me sexually. This is, you know, all the things. And then even so much so that I can, I can actually start, like, telling the truth to myself. Like, I can, I can even be honest with myself now. Like, that's next level um, grace. When the angel came to Manoah... And Manoah said, now tell me again, break it down for me. What will be his manner of life and his mission? And what did the angel say? He didn't answer his question. He said, and the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, all that I said to the woman, let her be careful. She may not eat of anything that comes to the vine, etc., etc. And essentially the angel says, look, you want to help this kid? You want to create an environment where he can actually flourish? Worry about yourself. That's good parenting advice right there. You want to be the kind of church community where the super, super gifted, super messed up person can come and actually find new life? Worry about yourself. Be the kind of community that practices Submission that practices honesty. That practices not getting defensive, but being vulnerable. Where we confess to one another. Where we're allowed to actually be exposed. Truth is, most of us like the sound of that. Very, very few of us have the nerve to try it. Because it's messy. It's super, super messy. A big part of it is like minding what we what we say. I was in uh, my small group, our ecclesia, this, um, this week. And after we sort of like ended, dismissed, um, one of the, the people in my group sort of hung out afterwards and was like, okay, Simon, I want to say something. I need to talk to you about something. But... Um, I, I just knew I couldn't talk about it in our group um, because it just, it just didn't, I just knew that it would get shut down. I'd probably be like told I'm wrong. I would, I would just be criticized or corrected or certainly not heard um, or given any space to just kind of like process out loud, even if I am like totally in the wrong. Um, so I need I need a, like sort of a secret meeting with you. And I remember thinking, and I, and I affirmed this person. I'm like, well, good on you. Thank you so much. Like, go, go for it. Speak plainly. And in that moment, that was my cue from her to like, don't, what she doesn't need is like, oh, like, this is how you're wrong. Hold on, you can stop talking now, because let me, let me tell you how you're wrong. You should probably write this down. Which is then her cue to never, ever, ever do that again. So instead, I just said, oh, wow, that's, what a great question. Wow, that's what you're struggling with. Oh, you're not alone. I I also wrestle with these things. Oh, thank you so much for being honest. And though, even though in the back of my mind, I'm like, oh, I got truth for you. I got Bible verses. I got, man, I'm gonna just like break it down for you. In fact, I've got, dude, I've got three sermons that I preached this last year that I'm gonna send, send you the link to. <laughs> like that's, all that does is reinforce an environment of like, you need to hide here, okay? And if you've got difficult questions, things that you're embarrassed of, things that you're ashamed of, you better keep that stuff on the down low. Otherwise, you're gonna be told off or talked down to or made to feel stupid or like you simply don't belong here. Now, I'm not saying we don't speak truth to one another. Of course. Any healthy family system must not just create safe space, equally important, brave space. So that once we've created the community of God's people, where I'm practicing vulnerability, I'm practicing submission, I'm practicing not lying to myself, but being honest about where I'm really at. Okay, now we've practiced it, we've practiced it, we've built trust up with this relational equity in the family. Okay, now now let's talk truth. Let's keep these Bibles wide open. So that when we delve into the really hard, emotional, painful, trauma stuff, we have a net that's strong. thing doesn't just burst wide open. Pillars don't come crumbling down. People don't just run away or withdraw or lash out because we have enough, enough health, enough vulnerability that we can like hold up. Our relationships can bear up as we all submit ourselves to God's word. Are you with me? Can we stand together, please? Our worship team is going to lead us in song as we get ready to close. Um, and Ben is going to lead us into communion as well. This, uh, this business of like relating to each other as a healthy, healthy family. Guys, this is like, this is all the New Testament. Here's the gospel. This is who God is. This is what he's done. Now here's how to act like family. This is what it looks like to love each other, to bear with one another with patience and humility, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace, creating an environment where Samson doesn't have to hide, where a leader is not put so high up on a pedestal that they virtually have to keep it on the down low. I think that at least in part, what was happening in that first church where I got my heart broken, There was this leader who was just kind of like, elevated, 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 elevated. And the notion of coming out was like, heck no. I'll be stoned, they'll crucify me. And so families create environments where you're virtually forced to hide. That's all the New Testament stuff, saying you don't have to do that. You don't have to do that. Confess to one another, submit to one another, Trust that Jesus is in your midst, doing supernatural things, inviting people out of hiding, unearthing individuals buried in shame, leading us all together to a greater revelation of the truth. This is the manner of life to which we're called.